you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. This morning we are starting chapter 2 of this book as we continue on our series looking for hope during trying times. You can also find the text this morning on the insert that came alongside your bulletin with a brief outline of the service included. Peter is writing to the dispersed churches in Asia Minor during a time of great turmoil, a time of crisis as they are scattered, persecution both within and without the church. Theological of nature, physical in nature, they face adversaries in all directions. And it is to them that Peter writes offering hope. And he offers them real hope, true hope, hope that can only be found in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's because of this, it's because of what Christ has done, we then in turn will love. We will love one another as an outflow of what Christ has done for us. And this week, Peter is going to continue that message. He started it last week, and we'll address that in just a moment. But we're going to learn how to love. Last week, the call to love. This week, how to love. And he's going to show that to us in in two distinct ways this morning. He's going to tell us what that should look like. He's going to tell us what that shouldn't look like. So giving us both the positive and the negative. What does true love look like for one another? What does it not look like for one another? And as we think about this, I don't think you have to ponder very hard to come to mind with what the world would say love does and love doesn't look like. You know, I, I think they, um, trying to define it like the world, it would either be this nebulous feeling that you can't even really define. It, it's um, mystical, magical, uh, it is un, indescribable, or it is the physical act of intercourse. Um, it's somewhere in between the two. Uh, it's almost this undefinable thing that happens to you. But as we see from Scripture, true love means living like Christ, living like Christians. To put it differently and to fit it into the context of the series we've been following, true love looks like holiness. It looks like godliness toward others and toward yourself. It is to that, and because of that, Peter writes his words to us this morning, so I do invite you to look along with me as I read the word of the Lord. I will be reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, the first three verses. Would you please follow along with me? In fact, let me, let me um, step back to the second half of verse 25. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy And all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He has promised us in his word it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. And I can guarantee you this this is his word for you today. Would you please bow with me as we once again go before our Lord and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We need to know how to love one another. We need to know how to display this love, not only to those inside the church, but those outside of it. In a world that is so confused about what true love looks like, give us clarity. Give us understanding. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts. That we might not just hear your word this morning, but that we may also receive it and that it may change our very lives, how we interact with one another and carry out our daily business. And, oh, Lord, I do plead with you now that you would give me strength for this next hour, that you would give me your words to say and give me the ability to say them. For your glory and for your people's sake, I ask this. Amen. Peter does a good job in this letter, and I would also say he does in Second uh, Peter, the second letter to the churches, in really alternating in what holiness looks like how we interact with people outside of the church and how we interact with people inside of the church. I would say 1 Peter chapter 1 is dealt with our interactions with the world more broadly. I would say that because it speaks very heavily of persecution. When you biblically love those who don't understand biblical principles that are going to hate you for it, they're going to despise you for it, they're going to not understand, uh, they're going to uh, want to accuse you of uh, ulterior motives. And so I believe that this is one of the reasons Peter is writing this to the church and to us today is because he knows this will happen. But I also think Peter has in mind as he writes to these churches not only to protect them from that which is outside, but to lift them up from within, to teach them how to interact together, to grow in holiness as a body of believers. We are called the bride of Christ, united together And we are called to strengthen one another and to hold each other up. And so Peter alternates really well. And I would say chapter 2, particularly this section, is good at at showing us how do we interact with each other here? How do we treat those in the household of faith? The devil knows all too well that sometimes it just takes a little bit of disunity within the house to make the house fall. You don't even have to attack it from without Because of that, I do want us to think about what it means to love one another this morning. We will do this in two ways, two particular ways. First, I want us to see how loving others means putting off unloving practices. Loving others does not look like the characteristics we find in verse 1. And then secondly, if that's what we're going to put off, let's put on Godly character, godly characteristics, godly ambitions, if you will. We find that in verses 2 through 3. So we're going to put off ungodly practice and we're going to put on godly practice. And by doing both, we will begin to see how we can love one another inside the house of God. And the beauty of this, and I I am making a, a bit of an overemphasis on our need to love one another within the church. This works whether you're a part of the church or not. I just recognize and hope you recognize that the world will respond differently to this than we should. We should respond in a very different way. And so with that in mind, let's jump into our passage trying to understand how to rightly love each other. And let's start by putting off unloving practice. If you go back in 1 Peter, I said we would address this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. Having purified your souls 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is Peter's call to love because your soul has been purified, because you know the truth. Love one another and do so purely, do so rightly. We talked about this last week. This is a true love. This is an act of God has given me so much and because he's given me so much, I will treat you kindly. I will treat you with respect. You can go to 1 Corinthians 13 and see what it looks like, patient and kind, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. And then here in these three verses in chapter 2, Peter says, now this is what that looks like. I've told you to love, now let me explain love to you. And he starts with the negative, I like this. He tells us it doesn't look like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. In fact, he says very particularly, put these things off. We need to kill these characteristics in our lives. As we relate to one another, especially those within the house of faith, these characteristics must not be found among us. You know, the verb here that we translate to uh, put away um, literally means to take off a garment. And depending on your translation, you may have something a little closer to that. It literally means to take off a garment. We find this elsewhere in Scripture, Paul in uh, Romans 13 and uh, verses 13 to 15 um, in Ephesians 4, uh, 25 through 32, and James, James 1, uh, 1, 21. Paul and James, in, in, both, in all three of these instances, use this word like shedding. You can think of a snake losing in its skin. It's, it's, it's a getting rid of that which is on you, completely removing it from your life. You know, I have a high school Leatherman jacket somewhere at home. It, it's in a box somewhere. I played three years of high school football. Well, I was on the team for three years. I had three knee injuries in four years. I played four years of high school golf and four years of high school band. And I will tell you, as a senior, wearing that Leatherman jacket was about as cool as you could get. It, it marked you. You were different. You were, in some ways, superior and I was equally superior, both as an athlete and a band nerd. I had the best of everything. At least that's how I saw it, um, not necessarily others. And when you saw that, you knew, you knew that person, they do things that other people don't. They spend their time differently, and it was so cool. Now imagine you've given me a phone call, and you've said, Aaron, I'd like to come in for counseling, or I'm really struggling with this theological issue. Would you, would you spend some time and come and meet with me? And we, we meet together at this church and you walk in and there I am at my desk in my Leatherman jacket. What are you, what's going through your mind? Is he homesick? Is he being really nostalgic this week? Why were they the Indians? That's kind of offensive. Like you've got a lot of potential thoughts going on right there, right? But I guarantee you none of them are going to be that is the coolest person I have seen this week. Boy, did he play those three years of high school football on the bench and four years of golf and in the marching band. I almost guarantee you that would not cross your mind. You see, there are times in our lives when we must shed 
our outer garments. We must rid ourselves of former identities, of things that, that we once held up, that, that once gave us pride and joy and, and may have seemed to be good. There comes a time to put those things away and to let them lie. That's how we are to be with our character. If we are Christians, if we are following the model of Christ, we must take off anything in our life that does not look like Christ. It should not be among us. We should not be identified by it. We do not let our identity be demonstrated by that which we were. Instead, we speak of who Christ is and how our lives have changed because of him. Now, with that imagery in mind, let's talk about specifically what Peter says we cannot wear. He gives us five things in our text. You cannot wear these as Christians, as people of the household of God. And I will say, and we will, we will talk about it as we cover these, to wear them will put you in a place where you cannot love. You cannot rightly love others while you're wearing this garment. You cannot be taken seriously with your Leatherman jacket of these characteristics. Let's look at them and see why that is the case. First, malice. Malice, defined by the dictionary, is to have the intent or desire to do evil. This is quite literally choosing to sin against someone. It is intentionally thinking about harming someone else. This is the antithesis of love, isn't it? It's quite easy to look at that and go, there's no way I can love if I'm having malice toward that person. And malice is intentionally, or is particularly dangerous because it is intentional and throughout. It is choosing to harm someone in a sinful way and it is disobeying the God who gave us himself and provided for us his commandments. It's taking something that is wrong, a wrong desire, and then doing something wrong with it. We can think of particular cases of malice in the Bible. Cain's sin in murdering Abel. We know his countenance fell. We know his heart was heavy from jealousy of his brother. God says, you better take over this sin or it will take over you. And the very next thing, he does not conquer that sin. He uses that anger to murder his brother. We look at David. David's sin in having Uriah murdered. He caught himself in a pickle, if you will. He slept with his wife and got her pregnant. He was unable to work out his scheme to have him, Uriah, sleep with her. And so David, send him to the front lines. When he gets there, pull back and he will die and everything will work out just fine. Intentional, wicked, malice. It's, it's premeditated. If you want to use the, the, the word today, it is destructive. And there's no way, there, it is not possible to love someone with this in your heart. It's probably the, the, the worst of the list and the easiest one to vilify. But I want you to look at the rest of the list because this one we kind of get and we say, yes, yeah, societally even, they don't do this one necessarily. But listen to these and ask yourself if culturally they're accepted. How about hypocrisy? Again, dictionary definition. Claiming to have moral standards to which you do not conform. It is giving the appearance, say the appearance of love, while living in wickedness. This may look like, I don't want to get caught, 
because I don't want to deal with the consequences. Not, this is wrong and I shouldn't do it, but I don't want to face the consequences. I don't want my reputation lessened. I'm going to say one thing and practice another because by doing both, I may get ahead. We can think of people in Scripture, Jesus quite often calls the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. And I love uh, how he describes them in Matthew 23, you whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You look clean, but you are dead in your heart. Internally, you are dead. Hypocrisy is looking good. It's grabbing that piece of fruit that looks good, and as you cut into it and you look inside, it is rotten. It is seeking yourself above others. And again, there, there is no way to, to love someone and in, in, in act in, toward them in hypocrisy. Because you're always, you're, you're trying to make sure that you're protecting yourself or that you're not losing anything in the, in the discussion, in the, the relationship. You want to make sure you're getting ahead. So you will say whatever it takes. Peter says you must put this off. Our third characteristic is deceit. Deceit defined by the dictionary intentionally misrepresenting the truth. Now here's where it gets interesting. We have another word for deceit. That is lying. And the Bible calls it something even else or other. God says in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Deceit is a violation of the ninth commandment. And I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms say on this point. We must preserve the truth and the good name of both ourselves and our neighbors while avoiding calling evil good and good evil. For that is what we're doing when we're lying. We are violating our own name. We are violating the name of our neighbor. We are calling evil good and good evil. Culturally, I would say, out of all the characteristics, this is the most widely accepted and practiced. I would say the culture would tell you you can love others by lying. Sometimes, by lying, you are demonstrating love toward them. Biblically, however, we, we find ourselves at the spot of saying it is not loving to be deceiving. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Again and again in Scripture, we are told and talked, are taught about honesty and integrity. You go to the qualification for elders and for deacons. You look at Timothy and, and, and Titus and Paul's teaching to them. And you go through that list. And really, what, what upholds that list is integrity. Do you trust that person? And how hard is it to trust someone once you've caught them lying again and again and again and again? And it doesn't take many times, does it? And then you find yourself going, I can't trust them. I, I can't believe what you say. And are you telling the truth now or are you not? It's hard to love in a deceitful way. And it's hard to receive that love too, isn't it? 
That's something we, we haven't really been thinking about, but it's absolutely the case. Not only is it hard to, to love while committing these acts, but it's also, it's, it's equally hard to receive love from someone who is in the committing of these acts. This leads us to, to the next one, um, which is envy. Envy, feeling of discontent or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions or qualities. Biblically, this one, this one has another name too, covetousness. Clearly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. To want, to desire, to long for that which you do not have is wicked. And it is not loving. It is not loving because one, the reality is it, it's not just saying I want what they have. Most of the time when we display envy, it's saying they don't deserve what they have. It's a, not just I want it, but they shouldn't have it. it. It goes that far, doesn't it? If we really are honest with ourselves, envy really is how did they get that? Can you believe that truck that they just bought? They don't deserve that truck. I work 20 more hours a week than they work, and I don't have that truck. It's, it's this, this evil underlying idea that you are better, that you are enough, that you are worthy. And, and what this does when it creeps into love is it starts to say, you should love me. You should treat me lovingly. It doesn't matter if I treat you lovingly or not because I deserve it and you don't. You don't deserve it. You are not worthy of it. And it can, it can rot a relationship. It really can foul a connection between one another. This mindset will, will eat you alive. I, I love what Proverbs 14.30 says. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy will make the bones rot. It is a cancer that will destroy from within. It is dangerous, and it will keep you from rightly loving others. And then lastly, slander. Slander being defined as the action or crime of making a false spoken statement, which is damaging to a person's reputation. Slander is interesting on this list. It is the only one on this list that can be criminal. You can be charged for slander today. It, it, it can be a, a, a criminal um, act. If certain criteria are met, there's like five of them. Um, I didn't write them down, but um, you've got to state it. It's got to be stated publicly. It's got to cause damage. You've got to be able to define that damage. Um, and there's a lot of suits. You, you see this with celebrities when they sue for slander. Um, and what usually gets them in trouble uh, when people sue for slander is if it's true, even if it hurts you, it's not slander. It has to be false. Um, if, if you say something bad about someone and it's true, whether it hurts them or not, it, it's true. You can't really do much about that. But society, out of all of this list, takes slander and goes, okay, we draw the line here. You can have malice, you can have envy, you can have lying, you can have covetousness, but we're not going to slander. We're not going to do that. Does that mean that society rightly gets this one? 
that they say that, you know, you really can't love each other when, when it comes to slander. Oh, no. The only reason society pays attention to slander is for that very reason it can hurt your income. Um, it, it, it can hurt your, your living, your way of life. It can damage your reputation. The Bible has a lot to say about slander. I would say looking at Christ and his life, we, we see no room for slander. Even the people that Jesus opposes, he opposes with respect. Think about that. Even in those times of his anger, even when he ran the people out of the temple, even when he had his debates with the Pharisees, even when he's, he's before Pilate, in, in all of those circumstances, when did he ever treat anyone with slander? Stating something that was not true. The Proverbs are full of teachings about slander. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a hard word will stir up anger. Proverbs 15.4 Gentle words bring life and health. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Then again, 16.24 Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. When we speak truthfully about one another, when we think about our words and the impact that they have, when we see that that childlike saying we love to teach children sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me as a communications major and a, and a theology major i can tell you that's one of the worst things we teach our children words absolutely hurt they hurt sometimes worse why because a lot of times when we we seek to slander someone when we seek to to tear someone down it's because of our own insecurities. It, it, it's because there's something lacking in our life. And so we think that by making someone else miserable, by dragging them down, by pulling them to our level, it will bring us joy. That's not the case. We need to be very careful, dear Christians, that we are, are intentional with our words. And maybe that means, as James said, let's be quick to listen, slow to speak. So that we make sure that our words, what we say, are good and helpful and uplifting. For it is easy to fall into the trap of slander, of digging into someone else. And it's hard to fix that hole once it's made. It, it, it's hard to, to have love in a place where these things have cratered someone's life. And I, along those lines, I, I want us to be very careful as we consider a list like this. It would be very easy to read this list and go, perfect, okay, I got you. Non-Christians, y'all don't, don't do these things and your lives will get better. You heathen people outside of the church, you stay away from this. It will improve your life. I know you're prone to it. But that's not who Peter's writing to, is it? Peter's not writing to the heathens in Asia Minor. He's writing to the church. Why? Because they're capable of this list. What does that mean? You and me are capable of this list. We are all tempted to drag one another down in order to lift ourselves up. We're all tempted to make less of others to make more of ourselves. We must, through the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to fight to rid these things from our lives, shedding these like a cloak. We must, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue love for one another. 
because we need one another. And like I said, once you put this in a place, once you put this in a relationship, it is hard to get back to a place of trust, to get back to a place of love. Once you pull the pin on this and it does its damage, it is hard to go back when you need that comfort, when you need that love, when you need that support. We must, as a community, as a church, root this out of our lives. We must work together in this. It is vital. It is necessary. If this is the case, and these are the things we must put off to love one another, if these are the characteristics that we say, I've got to get rid of this, and, and we feel the weight of that, saying, yes, you're right, I, I get you, these are bad, these are negative, let's stay away from them, what do we put in its place? Can't run around without a cloak. We need something in its place. So what do we put on? And for that, Peter offers putting on God, or desire, putting on a desire of God, and putting on a desire of his goodness. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 to turn to what we should have and he uses an interesting metaphor to do it, doesn't he? He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Now, we need to be careful here. This analogy, the specific analogy is used other places in Scripture to mean new Christians. A newborn drinking the pure spiritual milk. And then when you grow and you mature, you put that milk away and you start eating solid food. But I do not believe that's what Peter has in mind here. So I want us to be careful because he's writing to a church of believers, churches of believers. Many of them would be much older in their faith. And I don't think he's saying, now ignore all of the mature things that you've learned, all of the, the growth in faith that you've learned, and let's go back to the basics, back to the foundation, and let's get back to the milk when you've been eating steak. No, I don't think Peter would be saying that, and I don't think that's beneficial to the church. Instead, we need to think about it a little differently. We need to see that he's meaning this in a little bit different of a way. And I, I believe that when he says this, what he means is, we're not to desire that which is destructive, the characteristics in verse 1. Instead, we look for pure spiritual milk. What is that milk? The Word of God. Long for the Word of God. Desire the Word of God. How can I love my neighbor? The Word of God. How can I love myself? The Word of God. How can I treat one another kindly? The Word of God. Think about it. Infants are born with the innate ability to drink milk. They can digest it. It's what they crave. Whether it is from their mother or from a bottle, this liquid is the source of life for them. If they don't have it, they will die. If they have it, they grow and develop and mature. They seek it out. They are, they are born knowing how to get it. This is how we must treat the Lord. We must desire God as if He and He alone is our source of life and strength. We must crave Him as if we will perish elsewise. He must be our need, our desire, our longing. I love how Calvin explains this. Milk here is not elementary doctrine, which one perpetually learns and never comes to the knowledge of truth. But it is a mode of living which has the Savior of the new birth when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. It is saying, God, I need you now. I need you tomorrow. I need you every day. 
We must crave and consume the Word of God above all else as if we cannot survive without it because the reality is we can't. And especially when it comes to loving each other. We have no chance of rightly loving each other if we are not consuming this book. For the Word of God teaches us about God. It reminds us, it reminds us of His love for us and His love for the lost. It displays God's plan of redemption set out from the garden. And to this end, Peter says that this pure, pure spiritual milk, the Word of God, by it you may grow up into salvation. Just like it was used in 1 Peter 1.5, here the term salvation is looking forward to the fulfillment. We are not saying it is possible to earn your salvation. We are not saying it is possible to work your way to a right standing before God. Rather, Peter is saying here, by pursuing God's word and its truth, you will grow in godliness until that time of Christ's, work, or Christ's return, at which you will be saved literally. He will get you. He has promised. He is coming back for his brothers and sisters. I will return for my church. At that moment, salvation will reach its climax in your life. You will be truly and fully and 100% saved. We are saved because of who we are in Christ. We are being saved as we're being transformed into his image. And one day we look forward to the fact that we will be saved when he returns to take us home. And it's through all of this that we can then look at each other and love one another. The work that God is doing in us gives us the ability, the capability to love one another. To love each other in our weaknesses. To love each other in our failings. Because we can look at our brother or sister. We can look at them even when they sin against us and say, you know, the Lord's been good to me. The Lord has taken care of me. And I can take care of you. I can see you through this season. I've been through a season like that. I've faced that trial. Here's where I went wrong. Here's where the Lord, through his word, encourages us with that difficulty. And oh, how we need that church. Oh, how we need to, to be a people who does that for one another. Think about it. Peter's writing to a church of people who are suffering. They needed an end game. They needed a hope. When will this end? What will this produce? And Peter is saying it will produce salvation. This will produce salvation. Why? Because the Lord is good. He concludes verse 3. If indeed you have tasted, the Lord is good. This is, a, is, is really a, a take on Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the ultimate pure and spiritual milk that gives life. And if you have tasted that goodness, you will pursue it. You will love one another. You will put away the things of this world. Why? Because he is good. He is worth it. I will conclude by this, and, and, and the Lord was kind to me in showing me this. The point is actually made in this text really well if you read it backwards. Follow along with me. I, I'll conclude with this thought and just let God's word speak. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Therefore... Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in salvation. Because of this, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That is how we love one another. By looking to God and putting away the things of this world so that we will live like him, we will trust in him, and we will live for one another until he returns.
Will you please pray with me? We need you, oh God. Every hour, every moment, every day, we need you. You are life-giving, our source of hope and our source of strength. Help us to love one another, particularly help us to love those inside the church. But may we not stop there. May our love for you explode outside of these walls. May we take it to our work. May we take it to our family gatherings. May we take it to our homes, our neighborhoods, our interactions at the gym, at the grocery store. May our love for you bleed into all areas of our lives. For the world needs the love that you provide. Help us to shed those things of this world. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Help us to put on righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Walk with us, O Lord. Be close at hand and come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.